Titus chapter 1. In today's message, we're going to be talking about false teachers and how to deal with them. This is a difficult message for me to preach. And let me tell you why. Because to really preach this message, I, I need to in, instruct you on various levels, and I need to do it in a manner that honors the Lord and does not communicate any kind of judgment that would be self-righteous, but rather communicates discernment that is life-giving. So would you pray with me right now? Would you pray with me that I'd be able to do this? Because I believe that the trajectory of our church will determine the final place where we will rest. The trajectory of our church will determine where we end up. And the kind of things that I think God has for us to talk about this morning from Titus 1, verses 10 to 16, are trajectory kind of issues. Things that are hidden, things that are behind the scenes, but things that determine where we end up. And I'm not just talking about next week. I'm talking about you know, where Abigail ends up going to church. I'm talking about where Janelle ends up going to church and, and, and what kind of church Janelle worships in. Abigail is what, four, three, two? Well, I was close. Anybody below knee level, you know, they're about four or three. Janelle is what, nine? Hey, I got that one. And my son Joseph, who's 13. We're, we're, we're determining a trajectory right now that will determine where these young people worship and how they worship and what does the church look like that they worship in. We all have children, don't we? We all have children that, that, that we're concerned about. Some are younger, some are older. We want them to be in a church that honors God, a church that can speak into their life, a church that can have, be real because God is real. And that doesn't just happen if we just kick back and come every Sunday and just sort of, eh, whatever. We have got to pay attention to our trajectory as a church. And my friends, today's church in America is in trouble. And the trajectory is not a good one. So pray for me that I share that in a way that is gracious and kind, but in a way that's leaning forward in our foxholes, that we're carefully aiming our weapon at the right target, and we're squeezing off the round, and it's going downrange, and it's killing the enemy. Because there's an enemy that would love our church to just have a horrible trajectory and miss the goal. That's what this message is about. So let's pray. Father, help me, Lord, help me to speak your word with your wisdom, your authority, and help my friends to hear it with discernment and grace, and help us, God, to be in this race for the long term, and help us to be in it to win by your marvelous, gracious empowerment. May your grace train us now in righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. 
In addition to one million people crowding the highways and beaches of Titusville, Florida, an estimated audience of seven million people viewed the event on television. In fact, it was a new record at that time. And even President Nixon viewed the proceedings from the Oval Office of the White House. A Saturn V launched Apollo 11 from Kennedy Space Center on July 16, 1969 at 9.32 a.m. local time. It entered Earth's orbit 12 minutes later. After about one and a half orbits, the third stage engine pushed the aircraft onto its, the spacecraft onto its trajectory toward the moon with the, now listen to this carefully, with the translunar injection burn. Translunar injection burn. About 30 minutes later, the command service module pair separated from the last remaining Saturn V stage and docked with the lunar module. Three days and 200,000 miles later, on July 19th, Apollo 11 passed behind the moon and fired its service propulsion engine in order to enter the lunar orbit. In the several orbits that followed, the crew, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Jim Collins, saw passing views of their landing site in the southern sea of tranquility. Outside of war, it was possibly the only event of the 20th century to make the front page headlines simultaneously in every newspaper around the world. On July 20th, 1969, the lunar module called Eagle separated from the command module named Columbia. Jim Collins, alone aboard Columbia, inspected Eagle as it spun before him to ensure the craft was not damaged. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin used Eagle's descent engine to right themselves and descend to the lunar surface. As the landing began, Armstrong reported they were, quote, running long. Eagle would land now miles west of the intended site. The lunar module navigation and guidance computer reported several unusual, quote, program alarms, unquote, as it guided the lunar module's descent. In NASA's Mission Control Center in Houston, Texas, controller Steve Bales told the flight director that it was safe to continue the descent in spite of the alarms. Easy for him to say, sitting in Houston. (laughs) Well, to Armstrong, it was apparent that the computer was guiding them toward a large crater with rocks all around them. Armstrong took the manual control of the lunar module at that point, and with Aldrin's assistance, calling out data from the radar and computer, he guided it to a landing with about 30 seconds of fuel left. Armstrong's first words after landing were, Houston, tranquility base here, the Eagle has landed. Shortly after landing, the lunar module pilot spoke these words. I'd like to take this opportunity to ask every person listening in, whoever and wherever they may be, to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his or own or her own way. Then, Buzz Aldrin privately received communion. Aldrin, a Presbyterian, chose to refrain from directly mentioning this. He had kept the plan secret, 
not even mentioning it to his wife, and really did not reveal it publicly for several years. A mounted camera captured Neil Armstrong as he took his first step onto the moon on July 21st, 1969. Armstrong made his descent to the lunar surface and spoke his famous line, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aldrin joined him a few moments later saying, beautiful, beautiful, magnificent desolation. Then, for two and a half hours, they took notes, photographs, and drilled for core samples. Can you imagine being there? I want to back up a couple of days, and I want to talk about a moment that probably no one was watching. Millions watched the launch. Millions were watching when Neil Armstrong touched the earth. I would say maybe one horn-rimmed, glass-bespectacled NASA engineer in Houston maybe watched what I'm about to talk about. Okay? Maybe. And what I'd like to talk to you about is a very crucial moment in this mission. It was the moment that the translunar injection burn took place. That's right. The old translunar injection burn. Sounds good. Almost sounds like a racing term, doesn't it, Ray? Kind of gets you excited. You know, anything burning is good, right? Actually, there was fuel burning and there was rockets burning. Okay? And if this will jazz you, the vehicle that was doing the burn was probably going at about 23,000 miles an hour. That's pretty fast, huh? You ever been going that fast? <laughs> All right, got to keep you guys engaged here. Translunar injection burn. What in the world is a translunar injection burn? Well, since you asked, I'm going to tell you. It is a maneuver performed by a large rocket as this rocket is about to depart Earth's gravitational pull. So if you can imagine taking these orbits around the Earth and then right at the right time, you're getting around there, you're getting around there, and there's the moon, and it burns just the right, boom, and it shoots you off to the moon. Now here's the deal. The translunar injection burn lasts for approximately 346 seconds. I know some of you have already figured out how many minutes that is, and that's sick. I want you to know you're sick. I don't like you, Okay. 20 minutes after I read that, I figured out that's about five and a half minutes, okay? <laughs> you guys. So that's a five and a half minute burn approximately, okay? Uh, it's providing like 10,000 pounds of pressure on this huge vehicle that's traveling at about 24,500 miles an hour. We're talking some serious stuff going on here. Now here's the deal. The burn is timed so that the midpoint of the translunar injection burn, that midpoint is exactly opposite the moon, or more precisely, the moon's location upon arrival. One small mistake at this point, a burn too long or a burn too short, will result in missing the moon. Three days later, some 200,000 miles away, but the, a wrong burn at that moment will result in missing the moon three days later and 200,000 miles away, and probably the certain death of the Apollo 11 crew. So why am I bringing this up? Well, here's why I'm bringing this up. The trajectory of your life is often determined by a crucial translunar injection burn in your life. And if that does not occur properly, then it will mean you missing the goal three days, three years, 30 years later. 
And so in the life of this church and the church in America, there are crucial moments of trans-lunar injection burns when leaders lead and followers follow and people study and people walk in righteousness and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon us as it says in Titus 2, 11 through 14, and the grace of God comes upon us and it trains us in crucial moments to say no. And whether you say no or not in that crucial moment, will determine the trajectory of your life. There are men and women that I know right now with tears in my eyes whose trajectory in life was radically altered because of a failure to execute a proper trans-lunar injection burn. And you know that's just a metaphor. Failure to make the right decision. Failure to understand what's really important at the crucial point. And they end up off the mark three days 200,000 miles later. See, what I'm talking about today isn't just your life, although it applies to your life. I'm talking about the life of this church. What will it look like? Where will it land 20 years from now? That's what Paul was talking about to the church of Crete 2,000 years ago because they had a similar translunar injection burn moment, and we've got one today. Where will we land, my friends? Where will we land? For that reason, as it says in your notes, I want you and I want me, I want us to pursue sound faith to live fruitful lives for God. Pursuing sound faith is the translunar injection burn. It is the crucial element of us doing the hard work of making sure we're on course and we're burning the right fuel at the right intensity for the right time so that the trajectory is right so when we land, boom, we land. See, when you do space travel, okay, when you whip around and break that Earth's gravitational pull, at that moment, it's got to be just right, just perfect, just aimed at the right place with the right speed, and bam, once you're gone, phew, your trajectory is set. Isn't that a bad feeling? Have you ever, have you ever been, you, you, you go off a jump and your trajectory is set and you realize, oh, wrong trajectory. <laughs> ah, boom. We love watching videos, right, about people that do that. And we laugh at them, you know? But on a serious note, if you're a church or if it's your life, it is not funny when that trajectory ends up you crashing and burning and everybody in the car with you, usually your family and sometimes your whole church, and movements and families and people's lives are rendered fruitless and some are destroyed. That's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about. So having shared that, now I want to read the scripture. It should be in your notes. If not, Titus 2, or excuse me, Titus 1, 10 through 16. Hopefully this will make more sense as we read this because it is an intense passage. And... Uh, Paul takes off the gloves. It's the reason I wear all black today, okay? You know, the sheriff's back in town here. Because, <laughs> I mean, ca- Paul calls people out in this passage. And, and he needed to. Okay? Here we go. Verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers. You know what? I should have begun with verse 9. So, Houston, we have a problem. You ever see Apollo 13? That's a great movie. Houston, we have a problem. All right, let's start with verse 9. Titus 1.9, just to get the context. He, that means the elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. In the middle of verse 9, 
so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. So that's setting up now verse 10. Paul is telling Titus, go to, go to Crete, teach well, set up the elders, and now Titus, you're going to have to get in some people's face. Because it's translunar injection burn time for the church. and back, Actually, the church is in Crete. And this is what you tell those who contradict. That's another term for false teachers. Verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, Titus, rebuke them sharply. The fight was on, dear friends. The fight was on. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. That's our, our propositional statement comes from this. Pursue sound faith. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To, be, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. He's talking about these false teachers. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And then, boy, he does not pull any punches here. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Unfit for any good work. In distinction to these people, Paul calls us to pursue sound faith, sound doctrine, so we might live fruitful lives for the Lord. So let's look at now our notes. Who are the false teachers that we're talking about here? I think it's important to understand this. It's important to understand the original author and the original audience, and then we'll make application to today. Well, these false teachers are described in verse 10. They're described as insubordinate. They hate authority. They're surprised, um, described as empty talkers. All talk, no action. They're actually described as deceivers. And they're of the circumcision party. So they're probably Jewish converts teaching false doctrine. Look at verse 12. Jewish converts teaching false doctrine for the wrong motives. They're wanting to do it for gain. Now, that may be financial gain. It could just be gain in their reputation. I'm a great teacher. I have a great following. They're doing it for improper motives. And then, of course, the big, big uh, indictment on them in verse 12. They are... They are one of their own. The Cretans said that they're a prophet of their own. says they're lazy, liars, and gluttons. This is a lifestyle, folks. This is a lifestyle of these teachers. Verse 15, they're impure, they're defiled. And verse 16, they're detestable, and they're disobedient hypocrites. Now here's where I'm not going to name names, but I want you to look at me for a moment and listen to me. If you hear or see any, quote, Christian, unquote, teacher who is obviously proud, 
drawing attention to his or herself, doing it for money, find out how much money they have. Look at the watches they have on their wrists and the rings they have on their fingers, the gold they have around their neck. And I am restraining myself, trust me. Or the cars they drive. And if you're watching them on television, I want to issue a warning to you. Be very, very careful. They may sound good. What they're saying may have followers of tens of thousands and money pouring into their ministries in droves. I warn you, as your pastor, be careful. Because the trajectory of your life and the life of your children depends on you being careful. Okay? Enough of the false teachers. Let's move on. Why should we concern ourselves with them? Why talk about this? Why even issue that warning right there? Why? By by the way, let me just say something else. If you look at their lives and the lives of their children, and their children's lives are out of order, be careful. Be careful. This is why at this church we want you to know our families. We invite you into our homes. We want you to ask us the tough questions. Why? Because one of the marks of a false teacher is that they don't walk the, the walk. They, they talk it, but they don't walk it. Their lives are out of order. Corey did a great job of painting a picture of a leader, and most of those things that leaders do are all character things because you cannot teach if you do not live it because you're probably teaching it for the wrong motives. And even living it, you're teaching it probably out of a heart that's always fighting wrong motives. My heart always finds, fights wrong motives. But thankfully, there are men around me that can call my motives into question and can look me in the eye and know my family. There are no, I can tell you there are no secrets in my life. There is nothing going on in Alpino's life that men that I am submitted to don't know about. Nothing, including my wife. Now, I'm not going to tell you I'm perfect, but there's nothing going on that they don't know and are addressing and have the right to ask me any time about it. If you ever see someone who's unapproachable, has like a group of people around them, no one can get to them, just run from that. Turn the TV off. Burn the book. If you don't know their life, it's not worth it. You're doing a wrong translunar injection burn. You're going to end up in a place. Listen, those things don't endure. I'm talking next generation. So why should we concern ourselves with them? Well, let me, let me try to help you understand, okay? So I'm, I'm taking a pause from the notes and just talking from my heart. I actually wrote it down here so I could speak succinctly. Here's why. Here's why I'm so intense about this right now. Our call as pastors, Corey, me, our call is to serve you, to train you. The Bible calls that equipping you, to model for you, and to protect you. Now, Corey last week used the illustration of sheep. I didn't use that because I'd be far too kind to call you a bunch of dumb sheep, okay? But Corey did. (laughs) Just joking. Corey's a lot nicer than I am most of the time. (laughs) No, but, but our call, Corey and I have a call in our lives to protect you. Much like sheep, they can't protect themselves. He's right. Actually, 
God calls you sheep, okay? Not Corey. But because there is, a, there, there is an element of us needing to be protected. And so, and so we are glad to do that. We're glad to do that. And, and the, re, the way we do that is we study and we pray. And we're connected with, with a, a larger group of, of men that provide leadership for us. Men like Danny Jones and Brent Etwaller and, and C.J. Mahaney. And they're connected with men that I can commend to you. Like a, a, a Dr. Al Mohler or a Dr. Mark Dever or to a John Piper. And none of these men is perfect. But what I love about this is that they're, they're speaking to each other. They're able to speak into each other's lives and challenge each other on things. No one's inaccessible. No one's in a fortress. And so together, we could try to battle, hopefully with the spirit of joy and graciousness and charity. And that's where I usually fail. So call me on it, okay? But I'm, I'm doing war now, okay? So I'm, I'm the shepherd fighting the lion and the bear. But, I'm, but I want to do it, and Corey wants to do it, because we love you and we fear God. If I could talk to you from my heart, what I just expressed is one element, I think, of the false teacher. Boy, here's where I've got to tiptoe through the tulips here. Help me, Lord. There's another element. Oh, dare I use the word false teacher. There's another element of teacher and pastor and movement today that I wouldn't say is false but I'm very concerned about where the trajectory is going to end up on this. I'm thinking while I do this, okay? Corey's praying right now. Oh, Al, don't say anything. This CD may be destroyed right after, okay? A little Mission Impossible. Smoke comes out. Okay, here I go. Strap on the seatbelt. Here we go. It, it, is, it is a thinking that says this. We must be so relevant to the culture that we, that we must really, in an, a way that concerns me as far as whether it's discerning or not, embrace cultural ways, methods, and actually change the way we do church to the point where they would say we're more effective in reaching people, where I would wonder, are we losing the message? So the argument is, well, the message and the medium are different. I wonder if they're not a little more connected. Some of you are going, what in the world are you talking about? If that's you, I'm sorry. Get the CD and, you know, you may not be aware of this. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you knew exactly what I was talking about earlier about the guy on the TV, and that's going to hopefully help you be aware, and others of you are maybe more tempted by this one. Okay? <laughs> well, I hesitate here, but I'm going to do it. For example, have you seen the commercial about Apple and IBM? Anybody? Who's seen that one? The Apple and the IBM guy. Okay. I'm actually doing the very thing I'm concerned about, right? Using culture. But you got it. Here's, here's the problem with it. You, culture is 
a currency we use to communicate. And you've got the real cool-looking Apple guy. He's the young guy, handsome. Kind of looks like me. <laughs> How I used to look like. You know, he's got his shirt out. You know, he's hip, okay? And he's Apple. He's laid back. And then you've got the uptight IBM guy, right? He's got the suit on. You know, he's just, got the, he's, just, he's just obviously geeked out, right? He's just the geeky older guy with the glasses. And all of the commercials are intended to make you want to buy an Apple because Apples are cool. They're hip. And IBMs are not cool. Not only that, they always have problems. They break down. They're, they're hilarious commercials. I mean, I find them very, I laugh very hard. Well, what, what can happen, especially to young church planners and young pastors, and even old pastors <laughs> that want to reach people. When you see that commercial, right, you want to be the apple. So let's make our church like the apple. Okay? He's got to be careful. Our goal isn't to be an apple. Our goal isn't creativity for creativity's sake. Our goal is intentionality. Biblical intentionality, which at times may mean we do things differently to reach people in our culture. Miguel's song didn't sound like a hymn to me, did it? Did it to you? When he broke into that last little deal, I'm ready to salsa, let's go, you know? Can I do that? This is church, wait a second. Some people would say, well, you just lost it. Well, maybe, maybe not. See, this is where it's a difficult discussion, isn't it? The medium he chose to express the truth of the church was in a Latin Afro-Caribbean beat, which I loved. There may be some people in here today that thought, ooh, this isn't good. What is this? Okay? This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. Do you catch where I'm going? Okay. If not, I'm still going there. Here we go. <laughs> I'm going to share with you a, a few things. I'm still not in the notes, so just listen. It's, we're in the living room here together, okay, talking for a moment. I'm going to share with you uh, an interview that, was, that took place in a ministry that we highly respect. It's called Nine Marks Ministry. Okay, you can't see that there, but there's a Roman numeral nine, Nine Marks Ministry. And much of this material is, is found in this book, and there's also a website, and the book's entitled, What is a Healthy Church? What is a Healthy Church? And... Mark Dever is the president of Nine Marks Ministry. I know him through our leaders. I respect our leaders. I respect what they say about him. I've been to meetings and heard him speak. I would say he's a humble man. And so they're doing an interview with a gentleman named David Wells. I know you're going, David Wells, Mark Dever, Nine Marks. Where is Al going here? Well, where Al is going here is trying to define for you how we figure out what translunar injection burn to fire for our 25,500 mile per hour moving rocket, which is Palm Vista Community Church. When to fire and not fire. These men are like technicians to help us know when to fire and not to fire. Okay? And I want you to study it as well. This is a great book. It's, it's pretty new. I don't think Jose has it in the bookstore yet. By the way, Jose is translating for me out back. So please pray for him, okay? <laughs> That's why he's not seated right there. But uh, This would be a good book to get, okay? Just came out. I just received a copy from our guys, say, hey, please review this. Um, and I did, and it's good. Here's the deal. Here's the interview with David Wells. David is a, is a theologian who has written many books. The most recent book is entitled Above All Earthly Powers, colon, Christ in a Postmodern World. Postmodern World, 
Think Apple. Postmodern world. Think IBM. The world most of us that are over 40 live, grew up in, okay? We're like geeked out IBM guys. Everybody under 40 is a postmodern cool guy, okay? No time to get into what postmodern and non-postmodern is, but we're in a postmodern world. So Mr. Wells is an expert trying to understand how to relate to a postmodern world and yet not lose the essence of our trajectory, which is the gospel. Same thing that Crete was dealing with with Titus and Paul only 2,000 years later. What's at stake is the gospel. The issues maybe are a little different. So having said that, here's an interview with Mr. Wells, and this is talking about whether changing the methods and the medium of the message changes the actual message of the gospel. And this is what Mr. Wells says. Just listen to it. In every culture, you've always got to ask what any given practice, method, fad, or fashion says or does to the Christian faith. So any fad that comes out, any fashion, any new method, any new way of doing church, you've always got to ask, what does this do to the Christian faith? That's your fundamental question. Some things may be neutral. How long men grow their hair, I don't think, is particularly important. Nor is what musical instruments contribute to the popularity of musical styles. So hey, okay, you were okay, Miguel. No heresy in that, okay? (laughs) But those are not really the things that, now listen to me, that the church marketers have their eye on. You may not be aware of this, but in the the religious church world, there's this thing called the church growth movement. Church marketers, they go by many different names. There's an industry, multi-million dollar industry, to us pastors saying, grow your church. It's nothing different than any, any business, right? Right, you're a marketing guy. Grow your business, get more clients, get out there and make more sales. Well, in Christianity, what a sale is what? A soul, right? So go reach more souls. Sounds good, doesn't it? Except for what it sometimes means in its application for the gospel. So those are not really the things that church marketers have their eye on. They're trying to find ways of being hip. They want to be Apple. That's the bottom line. (laughs) And then he says many things, but then I pick up His answer in this. When we replace the pulpit with a cup of Starbucks coffee, and I like Starbucks coffee, which speaks of human connecting, we subtly make human connecting more important than our hearing from God, the very gospel of Jesus Christ. If we have nothing but Starbucks and light conversation around the word of God, we will find that the word of God disappears. Maybe not in our generation, but certainly in the next. Now, that's my concern. I like like Starbucks. Ask Lenny Machen. I've always thought apples were better than IBM's. I just can't afford an apple, okay? And Lenny won't let me change. (laughs) So it's not about that stuff. It's about the word of God and the gospel. And this is what Mr. Wells says. Now, pay attention carefully to this. What's been lost in all of this, in all of what? Church marketing, church growth, uh, the relevant church, the new church. There's many names this goes by. Missional churches. There's all these names out there. Uh, What's the one I'm forgetting? 
Emerging church, thank you. Emerging church, relevant church, all these names. What's been lost in all of this, what's been lost in the zeal to win souls, is the very medium that God says wins them, which is the gospel. It's like taking my money and, and, and taking my bullets, okay, and taking all my bullets to buy the best gun I can buy. And I've got the best gun I can buy, but does it do me any good? No, because I don't have any bullets left. So if I sell everything I have to get everybody in, but then I have no gospel with which to teach and train and correct and, 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 and see salvation one in them so that the next generation, when they come to church, it's just a gathering. It's just a bunch of people coming together 20, 30, 40 years from now. You understand Palm Vista is going to exist 20, 30, 40 years from now. What will it look like? Will I be here? I think it'd be way cool if I was here. I'd be 90. They're coming in. Hey, Corey. It'd really get me mad if your hair is still that color 40 years from now, okay? That, I'll be very mad at you if that's the case. You do realize we're going to be here 40 years from now, right? What are we going to look like spiritually? See, that's the question. Now, with that in mind, listen. What's been lost in all of this is a serious working doctrine of sin. Now, that's worth writing down. Just write down doctrine of sin. Big question mark. Huh? <laughs> What's been lost in all of this? This is still under false teachers. Oh, I am in big trouble. Oh, well. This will be a long one, Corey. What's been lost in all of this is a serious working doctrine of sin. George Barna, a researcher for the church, states that the majority of Christians, it's 54%, who claim to be born again in America do not believe that we are born with a sin nature. And let me tell you something, dear friend. If you don't believe that we're born with a sin nature, then culture is not all that bad. And if culture is not all that bad, then culture, you can use it anyway. It's like currency. It's like, it's like money. Or, uh, Corey said that money isn't bad. He's right. But you can't say that about culture. All right, culture is the world. I was memorizing a scripture in James 4. It says, if you love the world, it's hatred toward God. Eek. Culture's not neutral. Culture is not neutral. It really isn't. It's not neutral. So, if 54% say that, that, that we're born with, with, with not with a, a sin nature, in theological terms, now I want you to write this down. This will be good for you. These are called, you ready? This is a delicious word. You ready? Pelagians. Just turn to your neighbor and say, you stinking Pelagian. (laughs) Kind of like a Pelagian. It's like that. (laughs) How do you spell it, you ask? Here it is. P-E-L-A-G-I-A-N-S. Pelagians. This, this, is, this is the thinking that man isn't all bad. He's kind of good. Now, if man isn't all bad and he's kind of good, then how man is saved is totally different from what the Bible says. So totally different that you have movements today in these different churches, the emerging church, that says to say that God killed his son on the cross for your sin is saying that God is a child abuser. So I reject that. Now, I know most of us, translunar injection burn, right? That's what comes to mind right now. What are you talking about, Al? 
But let me tell you something. No one was watching the translunar injection burn when it went off. But if it didn't go off right, uh, trust me, nobody would have been watching Neil Armstrong step on the moon because he'd be stepping on Pluto, okay? <laughs> Only we know he wouldn't have survived till they got to Pluto. So no one's paying attention to Pelagianism. No one's paying attention to whether the, the atonement is really necessary. Did God have to kill his son in a bloody place? We're not really that bad. little education, little church. You going to heaven? Yeah, why? I tithe. That's enough. God will forgive me. Yeah, God, God's love. God's love is just sort of a wrinkled old man with, you know, long, wide, flowing beard. Of course he's going to forgive me. Well, if you're a Pelagian, yeah. But no. <laughs> no. No. Okay? Boy, just skip all the notes and go to the application. All right? Application. Application. I hope you hear my heart. As we go to the application, here's, here's what I think God's saying here. In every generation, there are people that teach wrong doctrine. Some for motives of gain and reputation and just to grow something fast or get a great reputation. Some because they just want money. Many of us, we're just asleep at the wheel. And you know what God's saying this morning to you and me? Wake up! Men, you may not be theologians, but you're the theologian of your house. My job in Corey's is to help keep you on your toes spiritually. To do that, men, you've got to be leaning forward. You've got to be attending church. You've got to go to home group. When we recommend you to buy something, buy it. Read it. Talk to your wives and your sons about it. Single men, talk to other singles about it. Single women, talk to other singles about it. Youth, read the books we're asking you to read. Pay attention when we're talking. Lean forward and realize that this is about not only your soul, but the souls of your children and the kind of church you go to and they go to. Now, I know most people don't think that way, but that's the way we're to think as Christians. That's being, that's in the image of God. God has long-term vision. So must we. So turn the TV off and read. Go to home group this Wednesday night. Couples. And talk about this. All right, so three application points here. Point number one. Purchase a good study Bible and commentary and read them daily. I suggest the NIV Study Bible. I use the ESV to preach from. NIV Study Bible's got great notes. The Reformation Study Bible is great as well. There is a commentary that I have I use with my quiet time. It's called the New Bible Commentary. I'll wake up in the morning. I'll sit down. I'm reading right now through Judges. Whoa, Judges. Who are all these kings? So I'll read Judges. I got the commentary. I'm reading to... Blah, 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 blah. Okay, his name's about that big. Who was he? Well, he was a big guy who, you know like to eat, you know, whatever, I don't know. And, you know, I'm reading about the guy, and I read what he did, and, you know, he sinned in this way. So suddenly when I read the Scripture, it comes alive. Wow, I could sin in that way. He's suddenly not just this old, you know, Jewish king, but he's someone like me whose heart can sin that way. And every day I have a quiet time. Profound, isn't it? Number two, this one is key, 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 key. Purchase Wayne Grudem's theological handbook entitled Christian Beliefs, 20 basics every Christian should know. And read it often. Now listen, I, I, 
I'm going to sin here, okay? So let me just prepare you. Mr. Grudem did his original systematic theology, which is that thick. And then we encourage you to buy his Bible doctrine, which is that thick. I think we can all do this one, okay? We've, we've got Mr. Grudem down to this bad boy right here, okay? Zip, all right? We can do this. Church, we can do it. We can do this, okay? All right. Having said that, and my son is here as my witness, we're going through this, right? Sort of, kind of. The wedding has kind of thrown us off a little bit. <laughs> I can remember times with Joey and Stephanie around our, our table. Oh, we were talking about the atonement. Remember that, Joe? Guys, I mean, I just, I mean, it's like, Dad, the Lord would do that for me. Yeah, he would, son. He's that serious about sin. Yes, he is, son. So I'm really a sinner. Yes, you are, son. He was rich. I mean, it's one, two, it's like three pages on the atonement. Read it. Read it now for the sake of your soul and the souls of your children and your grandchildren. And then apply it. And number three, work to make the connection between gospel truth and gospel conduct. This one you got to work at, men, ladies, children. You got to work at it. But this is crucial, my friends. Listen to the question from the Nine Marks interviewer that he asked David Wells. I love this question. Just listen, it's not your notes. The Nine Marks interviewer said this How do we cultivate a culture in a church that is able to maintain the idea of gospel truth? Propositional gospel truth. Not just what works, but truth. And I would add, how do we cultivate in a church and in a home and in your heart a place where gospel truth matters and a culture where gospel truth is applied with gospel conduct? That's why you go to home group Wednesday night couples and you sit down with your with your wife or your husband there and you just you just sit down and say well well, what's some gospel truth we can think about i know it's hard work i know you're tired i'm tired too but the trajectory you got to do the translunar injection burn on wednesday nights and that will determine the trajectory of where your life goes because you'll blink your eyes and 10 years will go by and you've wasted them but if you spend this time with other people going hey so, write this one down. So what does it mean in Colossians 3, 12 and 13? Just write down Colossians, C-O-L dot 3, colon, 12 and 13. So what does it mean in Colossians 3, 12 and 13, when it says, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us? Honey, how can we apply that? She goes, oh, you mean to the argument we just had on the way here? <laughs> and do it in front of a bunch of people who love you. And I'll hold your feet to the fire. You won't grow without it. And the trajectory of your life, you'll miss the mark. I guarantee you. Or, write this one down. Sweetheart, how can I love you according to Ephesians 5? Don't we love Ephesians 5, right guys? (laughs) Or ladies, honey, how can I submit to you as the church submits to Christ? As it says in Ephesians 5. Whoops. (laughs) What am I talking? Gospel truth. 
But you've got to get with a group of people and apply the gospel truth and gospel conduct. Burn! Fire the rockets! If not, you just head out into nowhere. You've got 25,000 miles an hour. <laughs> right? That's how my life feels sometimes. Fire that translunar injection burn. Home group, Wednesday night. Reading the Bible every morning. Going with a group of guys and maybe on a little retreat with the ladies. And, and it just, they're often, the little burns were burning all week long. Singles and youth, you can do that as well. We've got to close with the song. So bear with me. We are going a little bit longer this morning. Worship team, come up here. I trust God spoke to you today. We got to sing. We got to sing. What are we singing about? We're singing about God's kingdom coming into our lives now. We are singing, God, I want to reach the goal. What is the goal? The goal is a life that is lived for God. The goal is living for the Lord. The goal is not just staying out of trouble, but passion for God. I want to arrive three days, three years, three decades later on the goal, the moon, figuratively speaking, 200,000 miles away, and so therefore I'm going to fire my translunar injection burn consistently through my life. Folks, let us value the truth, the gospel truth, and then let let us work to apply it in gospel conduct. Let us lean forward and do this for the sake of our own souls and the souls of our children and our children's children. Amen. Let's sing.